I would like to start, first of all, by um, just letting you guys know how thankful I am for the extraordinary job that Pastor Kim and Pastor Pete did the past two weeks. Uh, you have no idea uh, what, yeah, unbelievable. The, uh, the term synergy, I, I don't know if it means much to you, but, but it's the idea that you put three people or any number of people together and you get more than what you would have individually. Uh, the Lord has kind of knit our hearts together in a way that um, has just been a, a precious blessing to me. And um, I'll get all crying here. I'll, I'll just stop because uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it, it is so mutual, man. Yeah. Yeah. I want to start by uh, introducing you to someone. His name is Iliud Kipchoge. And you can see he set the world's marathon record September 25th, 2022 in Berlin. Two hours, one minute, and nine seconds. Now, you wouldn't believe it if I were to tell you, but I can run like the wind blows. <laughs> Forrest Gump. <laughs> That's as good as an impression as I get. Put me right beside Mr. Elude Kipchoge and let the gun go off and I will dust him for the first 50 yards. <laughs> After that, you know. And so, who cares, right? It's a marathon. The first 50 yards doesn't matter. Initiating something, as exciting as it is and as easy as it is, it's really not that significant unless we fulfill what we initiate, accomplish what we initiate. How many of you know it is way easier to start a project or to start some endeavor than it is to stick with it and complete it? How many would say, yeah, way easier? All right, all right. So let me share this scripture with you. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are others that have walked with God throughout their life. If you read chapter 11, you'll see their names. Let us, <clears throat> let us get rid of every burden and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with, what does it say? Patient endurance, the race that is laid out for us. Another version closes it this way. It says, so then let us run the race that is before us and do what? Never give up. We're not running a sprint. We're running a marathon. It's talking about our entire life, this entire developmental journey where we are meant to reconnect with our creator Christ in trust. And then after reconnecting with him in trust, he can start to work in us and work through us. We become who he intended us to become and we do what he meant us to do, which is the very purpose of every human being's life. Now, this race, this lifelong journey, it requires this word for us to be steadfast. You look through scripture, there's an enormous number of references that in various ways urge us that have trusted in God, that have returned to God in trust, to remain steadfast. Now, those exhortations wouldn't be there unless there was going to be resistance, unless there was going to be the tendency to be tempted, the tendency to be distracted, the tendency to fall, the tendency to start well but not continue on. Hence the Scripture, our God who loves us, keeps urging us to be steadfast. Now, the word steadfast, we, we could look at different words. It could mean to become consistent, to become faithful, to stay devoted, to be unshakable, to be unstoppable, to be immovable. 
all means the same things. So our God who loves us, who created us, who wants what is best for us and knows what is best, he says, I, I want you to cultivate this trait of being steadfast. The importance of steadfastness. Let me show you really quickly some of the importance. It is the key to going from impossible to mastery in any field. In other words, there are fields that when we first start in something, let's say we, we decide we want to play an instrument, it will be impossible for us to just pick up a guitar unless we're some kind of a genius and, and play it immediately. But we can go from being what is impossible to possible and then to mastery if we become steadfast. Resilient value-based principle governed living. It's the key to resilient value-based principle governed living. I'm, I'm consistent. I'm doing things because they are right. They are appropriate. And I can do them when it's easy and I can do them when it's hard if I cultivate this trait of steadfastness. It's the key to the deepest and healthiest relationships. The longer we stay in a relationship, all the ups and downs, the more healthy uh, that it becomes and the deeper it becomes. It's the key to divinely intended character development. You and I will not grow. We will not become the Christ-like version of ourselves that God intends unless we cultivate this trait of steadfastness. It's the key to maximizing our God-given potential. It's the key to increasing our God-given capacities for love, joy, and peace. We have the capacity for love. We have the capacity for joy and peace, but they will not develop they won't expand, they won't extend unless we cultivate this trait of steadfastness. Now, I want to I take it to a different level. I want you to see what God says about steadfastness and why he says it is so critically important for each and every human being. Here we go. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. John 8, Jesus speaking, he says, you're truly my disciples or you're really my disciples if you remain, what does it say? faithful to my teaching steadfastness he says if you want to know if you're really my disciple the mark is you'll stay faithful to my teachings acts eleven twenty six. now it was in antioch that the what is the word the disciples were first called what christians i want you to see this jesus said go into all the world and make disciples he didn't say anything about going to all the world and make christians the disciples followers of the way they were called in acts um, as well we're first called Christians at Antioch. So here's the formula. I must become a disciple, which is a follower of Christ, and that makes me a Christian. We have this thing all turned inside out and upside down. But I'll deal with that as we go on. Let's go a little further. 1 Corinthians 15.1. My friends, I want you to remember the message I preached and that you believed and trusted. You will be saved by this message if, whenever you see if in a verse, Stop, pause. There's a contingency there. It's a condition that has to be fulfilled for the promise to be gained. You'll be saved if you hold firmly to it. That's big. Colossians 1.22, you must, of course, continue how? Faithful on a firm, sure foundation and must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope you gained when you heard the gospel steadfastness you can't be shaken you must continue faithful you must hold firmly to it let's look again hebrews three fourteen. for and then you see the word if conditional promise if for if we are what does it say faithful how long yeah. to the end trusting god 
just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to who? Christ. This is saying you want to be a, a partaker of God's kingdom now in this life and for eternity. I must be faithful. How long? To the end. To the end. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus speaking, says, But the one who stands firm, how long? To the end, to the end will be what? You mean you have to stay faithful all through your life until the end of life in order to be saved? But, but Brandy, well, I, I thought when you pray that prayer, you know, that, that sign seals and delivers it. You know, you got your contract, you got the stamp on the contract, you know your elevator's going up, it's not going down. And, and what does Jesus mean? I've got to stand firm until the end. What does it mean we, if we are faithful to the end we partake of Christ? But Randy, I, 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 thought, I thought you said, man, once you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven, you receive eternal life, you're, you're eternally secure once, once you put your trust in Christ and become his follower. That's true. But, but what about this faithful to the end? Well, let me, let me show you a couple more verses that'll, that'll expand this. Jesus speaking, he said, my sheep listen to my voice, actively respond to the word of God, continuously respond to the word of God my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and what do they do that's continuous action they follow me I'm just curious anybody in here happen to know how long the average sheep lives anybody want to give a guess average sheep's life about 10 to 12 years how long does a sheep once a sheep gets acclimated to his or her shepherd and their voice, how long does that sheep follow that shepherd? Forever, their whole life. Every time the shepherd speaks, the sheep responds because they trust in the shepherd. It is natural, it is spontaneous. Once I trust in Christ and become his follower, it is natural and normative and spontaneous for me to follow him, to respond to his word. He says, learn it, I learn it. He says, stop it, I stop it. He says, start it, I start it. Why? Because I trust him. That, that's the nature. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them, what, is, what do they get? Eternal life. And they will never perish. That sounds pretty eternally secure. No one can snatch them away from me. But Randy, this sounds like it's a contradiction. On the one hand, you know, it says that once you become his follower, you have eternal life. That sounds like eternal security. But those other verses said it's, it's only sure if we're faithful until the end. That, that sounds contradictory. Well, here's the explanation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John is talking about a situation that was actually occurring in a church during his time. He says, they left us, however, they were never really, what does it say? Part of us. So picture the picture. They were in a church context, openly uh, saying that they were Christ followers too. But John is saying they, they deserted. They didn't remain steadfast. They didn't remain faithful. They walked away. How many of you have you ever known someone that at one point in their life, they uh, associated themselves with being a Christian? They, they kind of said, yes, I'm a Christian. I put my trust in Christ. But then they walked away and they went into a totally different lifestyle and maybe stayed there for many years or the rest of their life. How many have ever known somebody to do that? 
almost everybody in the room. They left us. However, they were never really part of us. If they had been, they would have stayed with us. But by leaving, they made it clear that none of them were what? A part of us. Judas looked like the real deal when he was with the rest of the disciples for the three and a half years that he was with Jesus. If we would have looked at Judas, we would have think, thought that he was a real follower of Christ, but Jesus made it very clear he never really was. And he ultimately betrays Jesus' deserts because he never really was. You see, the truth is this. If I actually put my trust in Christ and become his follower, I will continue to follow him come hell or high water. I will follow him for all my days. But I might look like I've trusted Christ and appear to be following for a while. Maybe I've got a goal. Maybe I want to win, win a girl or win a boy. Maybe I want to win a spouse or maybe I want to get a promotion or maybe I want to make some new friends. There's all kinds of motives. Judas' motive was he thought if Jesus had all this power, miracle-working power, well, someday he would take over the Roman Empire, take over the world, and Judas wanted to be in on all the fame, all the fortune. His motives were not pure. There, there's lots of reasons that people will masquerade as Christians for a season, and they may look like the real deal for a season, but the, the acid test is the staying. It is steadfastness. That, that's what shows, and that's what John is saying here. So there's no inconsistency between when a person actually trusts in Christ, they are saved and secure. They're, they're just as sure of heaven as though they've been there 10,000 years. But if that person has actually trusted Christ, they will continue on for the rest of their life and they will continue on no matter what the cost may be. Now, now we get this model all mixed up. We, we think that this, this salvation thing is kind of like this package that God gives us, you know, that if you do certain things, you get a package. It's kind of like uh, this old funny, old, old joke. It may, may not be funny to you, but supposedly these people, they all die and they're all at the gates of heaven and they're standing in line in heaven and they're listening, and, and uh, the word gets out in the line that what they do when you finally get to the front of the gate is that Peter is there, and he asks you to spell a word. And so one person's listening, and they hear Peter say, okay, spell dog, and you're in. Well, the person lights up, D-O-G, you're in. And another one, spell cat, and you're in. And the person's excited, and in, in. And then you get there, you get there, you get there to the gate, and Peter says, spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> phonics won't help you with that one. <laughs> Even if you know phonics, you're lost. You know. So we have this notion. And by the way, I want to be serious here for a minute. Um, I remember back as a young Christian, hearing people literally, in fact, this was taught to me, this, what would you say if you got to heaven's gate? And they said, why should I let you into heaven? you would say, because Jesus died for my sins and he rose again. And they'd say, yes, and they would usher you into heaven. That's a misunderstanding, folks. That is a critical truth, an absolute critical truth. Yes, Christ loved me, loves you so much, he died to save us, to rescue us from our sins. That is true, and he rose again. That is true. 
And that is to be the basis, the foundation for me putting my entire trust in him. Since he loved me enough to die for me to save me from my sins, that is the reason I can put my trust in him and follow him fully and follow him freely and follow him forever. But the recitation of those facts about him, they mean nothing. The devil could recite those facts uh, and tremble, it says in the book of James. So we have to differentiate. This thing is related. God is supremely relational. Uh-oh. I'm full of electric again. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Should we go to another mic or try this for a bit longer and see if I blow up or not? Uh, <laughs> God, we, we always have to get our minds back to, it says that, it describes God in three different ways. It says God is light, God is, is love, God is spirit. He's love, he is supremely relational. Therefore, anything that he does with us, it has to be based on authentic relationships. He's not gonna force us into his kingdom. I mean, a lot of people are funny. They, they live down here on earth and they, they try to, to stay right on the edge or as far away from doing things God's way as they can. Can, I, can you do this and still be a Christian, Randy? Uh, you know, and it's always something sinful, right? It's never something good. <laughs> it's like, well, I suppose you can. You can drink poison too if you want to, but I wouldn't recommend it, you know. So it, it's, it's authentically a relationship. It is not this uh, recitation of a formula hence the one that is steadfast to the end all right I'm going to spend the rest of the time in the message now I hope I've established with you the importance of steadfastness the rest of the time in the message I want to just just kind of quickly touch on some challenges to steadfastness challenges to steadfastness the first is this the spiritual challenges now spiritual challenges to steadfastness come primarily in the form of what is the word deception deception i'm going to read you a series of verses and then i'm going to kind of embellish on this a bit let's look at revelation first revelation 12 9 it says the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called who the devil or satan see how the scripture interprets itself if you just read it patiently um, who does what leads the whole world astray now, this doesn't mean that each and every person in the world is astray or deceived because there are those that are authentic followers of Christ. They've been reconciled to God relationally. They are not able to be led astray, but he's using this term in a generalization. How many ever saw the movie The Matrix? If you haven't, you should see only the first one. The rest of them are a waste of time. <laughs> but um, unless you like watching people dodge bullets like this, which is pretty cool, but... Um, it's about uh, people that think they are exercising their free will and living a normal life, but they're not. They're, here it goes again. They're actually in, in these pods and these machines are feeding off their energy. So, so it's all a delusion. They think they're free, but they're not free. They're actually in prison. So he leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. By the way, that has not happened yet. He has not been hurled to the earth yet. That happens just at the point of the last three and a half years before Christ returns. Let's go on to another verse. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan, who is the what? God of this world. 
Now that doesn't mean that he's the real God. It just means that he has that much sway, that much influence, that much authority. He has that many willing followers. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. What that is saying is that Satan has so damaged our way of thinking, our perspective, our value system, that when many people hear the true message of Christ who is the epitome of God, everything we can ever know about God is in Christ and his kingdom is uh, revealed by his own lifestyle. But there are certain people when they hear this, they say, ah, man, you know, that's your deal man if you need that Jesus stuff that's cool if that floats your boat whatever but they don't see anything attractive is what that's saying Satan has so damaged their minds that they don't recognize anymore that they were eternal beings meant to live by Christ for Christ with Christ and eternally with him that's all been kind of jarred out of their minds their way of thinking they're absorbed with temporal things and they could care less about any other thing let's go on 1 John 5, it says, we know that we belong to God even though the whole world is under the rule of who? The evil one. So so we're seeing the consistency here that in this this planet of of nearly 8 billion people now, the vast majority are living, as it were, in the matrix. They think they're free. They, They think they're living the best life possible. But in fact, they're under the influence of this evil, hateful, rebellious, extraterrestrial being that has a lot of different names, Uh, Lucifer, Satan, the devil. Uh, I want you to think in terms of angels being extraterrestrial beings because that's a good description of what they are. They're not terrestrial. They weren't made on this earth. They were made in the heavenly realms. They live in the heavenly realms. They are real beings, and some of them want to destroy the work of God, the will of God, and, of course, we are prime uh, ways of them doing that. So one last one in the book of Ephesians. It says, So put on all God's armor, evil days will come, but you will be able to stand up to how much? You see, steadfastness, that's what it's about. It's about no matter what the temptation, no matter what the bribe, no no matter what the distraction, no matter what the, the intimidation or threat, I will, you will, we will stand up, stand faithful to Christ. We will not shrink back. We will not be silent. We will not give up. We will not walk away. And even if it costs our life itself, we will lay down our lives rather than shrink back from our devotion to Christ. That's what it's saying. We will be able to stand up to anything. And after you have done everything you can, you will still be what? still be standing right until the end so clarification one more time it is possible in a room this size that some of us in here have considered ourselves Christians and someone somewhere maybe a preacher told us that as long as you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again you're saved you're going to heaven you're good I hope you know that's fallacious that's not true 
That is the basis for you or I putting our trust in him and becoming his follower. Unless I trust him, I am called to put my trust in him. The things that he did are the basis for me trusting him. A Christian is first and foremost a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Christ. What did a follower of Christ look like in first century when those terms were first used? A follower of a teacher, a rabbi, was one that found the teaching, the truth that that teacher was giving so attractive that they went to them and said, I want to immerse myself. I want to spend the rest of my life immersing myself in your teachings, internalizing your teachings, living them out so that I can become like you. That's what it meant to be a disciple. When I say, you say, we say, I'm a disciple of Christ, it means he has so won my heart, so won my trust, that I, I don't care if anybody else is following Jesus. I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to follow him fully, and I'm going to follow him freely and forever. Whatever he says, I want to learn, I want to do, I want to become. I want more than anything to become like him and to live forever with him and in a world full of beings that are just like him. So all that's entailed in being a disciple. All right, so when we talk about the spiritual uh, the spiritual deception component that makes being steadfast so difficult. Let me just quickly give you a few things to think about. We live in a world where the evil forces have created multiple forms of spirituality, false spirituality. For example, th there's about 2.4 billion people that claim to be Christians. Now, we know that that's not true. We know that sometimes people, just because they're born in America, they say, you yeah, know, I'm a Christian. You know, I believe in God, you know. That's not a Christian. We've established that. A Christian is a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Nevertheless, it's about 2.4 billion that identifies that. There are nearly 2 billion now that identify with Islam, Allah, an evil, the most vicious, violent, evil deity on the planet, uh, the most destructive historically. Study the history of Islam. It started with bloody battle, and it still continues with terrorism today. But nevertheless... You've got about four billion, four and a half billion people taken up just there. You, you look at Hinduism, there's about a, a billion Hindus. So now you've got five billion people out of about eight billion on the planet. You've got about half a billion uh, that are Buddhist. You've got, um, on top of that, probably about 762,000 762, or so that are what they call unaffiliated, uh, which means they might be agnostic, they might be atheist, they might be just, you know, uh, neutral, that God just doesn't matter to them. And so... You can see that, that almost out of 8 billion people, almost all have embraced some form or identified with some form of spirituality, whether it's true or not. The evil ones have flooded us with multiple religious experiences and opportunities to confuse us. Philosophies. Think of the, the, the global history of all these different philosophies. You know, you, you had Stoicism, Epicureanism. You, you have uh, Marxism. You have, you know, fascism. You have capitalism. You have socialism. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. Philosophy, existentialism. People get hooked up in these philosophies, and it becomes like a religious experience. It starts to dominate their perspective, create their value system, direct the course of their life. And then on top of all that, these spiritual forces, they create a false value system. They 
try to find ways to tell us certain things are so important, so valuable, that actually we find out to be not. We try them, we like them initially, only to find out later on we pay a cost for what we've dabbled in. Every one of us in this room have dabbled in something that initially we thought it was desirable. We thought it was exciting. We thought it was fun. We thought it was going to be good. It was going to get us what we want when we wanted it. And maybe we got what we wanted, but then later on we find out, I now don't want what I got. We've all known that experience. So, so there's all these, these mechanisms that these spiritual forces have created to confuse us and intimidate us and keep us away from the truth about God and the way, the, the way of life. Now, before I introduce the second point, which has to do with culture, I want to show you, just, just be patient for about one minute, I want to show you a little video on the screens. We're playing this to you in real time, no editing, as it actually happened. Okay, floor two. Rebecca gets off, Emily gets on, she also works for us. We're swapping people in and out to reinforce the behavior. Emily's acting like it's the most normal. Oh, Nadia's turned. Nadia, it, okay, her bag is slipping off her shoulder. She's nervously playing with it. Yeah. Nadia's now halfway round. Will she go any further? Emily gets off, Mike gets on. Again, Mike works for the show. Presses his button, faces the back like it's the most normal thing in the world, like he does it every day. Nadia is really feeling the pressure right now. I'm not going to see anyone else. Isn't he a Scott's making some small talk. He was in celebrity rehab, I think. Oh. Yeah. She's looking towards the back of the elevator because everybody else is. Floor four. I love the guy. Fourth floor, Mike gets off. Lauren gets on. Lauren also works for us. She's in. Oh, and Nadia, Nadia. <laughs> Nadia has gone. The fourth floor, Nadia. Now, you've probably seen that before. It was first actually done on the old, old show, Candy Camera, in like the 60s. But let's be honest for a minute. If you got on an elevator and everybody was facing back, the opposite direction, how many of you think you would consider facing the same direction everybody else is? Can I see your hands? How many think, yeah, I probably would? Okay, at, le at, le at least half of someone's like, not me. I'm a rugged individualist. Until you get on that elevator and everybody's facing in the, the wrong direction. And, and I showed you that just to show you that one of the things about the way that we are wired is we want to fit in. We want to go along and get along. We, we follow the pack. We follow the majority. We, we tend to feel safe. We, we tend to rationalize like, you know, the, the vast majority of people can't be wrong. And so... This starts to influence and govern our behavior. We call it peer pressure, you know, when it's kids, but we as adults still, you know, submit to it to a great degree. I mean, you know, not many of you were alive uh, in the 70s that can remember what you were wearing, but I can guarantee you that do remember the 70s and what you were wearing, you're not wearing that today, <laughs> okay? It's because styles change, we try to change, we don't want to, you know, look odd and all that kind of thing. There is a power in culture. So here we, we'll go to it. Culture challenges, challenges to stead, culture, cultural challenges to steadfastness come primarily in the form of coercion. Coercion, intimidation, pressure. 
That word pressure is interesting. It's used a lot in the New Testament, and Jesus used it in a very specific way. He said in Matthew 24 that there was a time coming called the great, we call it the great tribulation. But the real word, the Greek word, is thlipsis, and and it is the word for intense pressure. Jesus says that as the age closes out, and as his return gets nearer, that there will be more and more and more pressure on people globally, and particularly his followers. He he goes so far as to say in Matthew 24, he says that the time will come where, where all that follow him will be hated. How many of you have lived long enough that you can see that, an at, that attitudes have changed in our society toward followers of Christ and they've become negative and it's speeding up rapidly? And, and so we have to be aware that, that the reason God calls us to cultivate this trait of steadfastness is that the pressure, the, the counter pressure is not going to get any easier as the age comes to a close. It is going to get more intense And so we have to be strengthened. We have to be prepared for the kind of pressure we're going to come, we're going to experience in culture. And it's mostly in the form of coercion because we want to fit fit in. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to thought as being odd. We don't want to be disagreeable. We, We just want to be liked and loved. And that can be difficult. Matthew 7, Jesus gives a really simple example He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to where? Destruction. And what does it say? Many, the majority, the majority, says Jesus, are gleefully, I added gleefully, on a road that doesn't lead to where they think it's going to. It's leading to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only, what does it say? Only a few find it. Percentage-wise, 8 billion people, even that number they get for Christians, 2.4 billion. I think we'd parse that number way, 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 way down when you talk about real followers of Jesus. Um, so few is what Jesus says. Few there are that find it. So what this is saying is that culture ex- it's going to exert an ex- ex- a growing pressure on us because as more and more people are not following Christ not taking Christ seriously uh, that that affects us for example I don't know I, I just I don't know what it means <laughs> think, think of an alternate world so you know in the alternate world when you turn on TV every program the protagonist is a Christ follower and all the characters they're wondering but what does the Bible say how should we handle this you know and all the world leaders when they get together for their global summits they're all saying but wait a minute what is God's will in this we've got to we've got to consult the Bible and find out how to how to solve this problem what if Every hip-hop song, every rap music song, it was all about, and I love Jesus so much. And, you know, it was all, all positive stuff, you know, all about righteousness. No bad language, no profanity. What if every movie, I don't know. I'm just going to go on until somebody tells me to stop. <laughs> um, every movie, well, again, every book, every newspaper, all of it was all about Christ it was all God-centered that was the world that we lived in but it's not it's not we live in a world the way that 
that society, that culture coerces us, we live in a world where God is not taken seriously at all. He's treated pretty much as though he doesn't exist for the most part. You know, when you think about, you know, all the educational materials that are created, when you think about the educational system, uh, God is not mentioned. Um, you, you think about all the other art forms and communication forms and media forms, he, he's absent. So God in our culture is treated as either non-existent or inconsequential. It's kind of like you can kind of pick or choose your own God. Want me to go to this one? Yes, yeah, try. Right. So, uh, am I on? Okay. It sounds quiet to me, but maybe because it's not coming through this or it is. We okay? Okay. I'm not sure what the hand signal meant, but uh, it sounds soft. Are y'all hearing me? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, in our culture, like I say, God is kind of looked upon as you can pick a smorgasbord, you know, whatever God you form or whatever God you choose or whatever image of God you embrace or feel comfortable with. You know, maybe your God permits you to do this because you have your truth, you know, as opposed to the truth. So our culture treats God as either non-existent in reality or inconsequential. The world leaders of our world, they don't consult God or think about God when they make their decisions, nor does their educational systems and so forth and so on. So this is the real world we live in, and it's a, it puts a lot of pressure. Now the sound's changing dramatically up here guys it, it, it was kind of okay the way it was uh, before that <laughs> now it's echoing weirdly in my head or I could be hearing voices <laughs> let's go on to the next passage Romans 12 it says do not allow this world to do what to mold you into its own image so here again we see a coercion a, a pressure to conform be like everybody else just you Christians, just shut up. Quit carrying on about being faithful to some truth that God has revealed to humankind. My truth is my truth. You can't, I don't know what your truth is, but I have my own truth. But we keep saying silly things. We Christians like, no, no, no. There's only one truth, and it's the truth that God has revealed, that the creator established, placed in the universe, placed inside of us. And it's what we're called to embrace. Do not allow this world, which means I've got to be steadfast. It's going to try to crush me, mold me, shape me, make me. I've got to keep pushing back. I have to have equal pressure. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. Now, the only way that happens is my mind needs to be recalibrated. It needs to be saturated with God's truth. I need God's perspective on life and everything in it in order to have my mind renewed, which will affect my character and empower me to push back against the pressure. Anybody here familiar with the Mariana Trench? Okay, Marianne Trench. Deepest, deepest place supposedly on the planet as far as the ocean. It's like seven miles deep. Well, they took one of those bathyscaphs down there and they were shocked to find fish down there nearly seven miles down. Now, the reason they were shocked is because the pressure should crush them. It, it would crush a tank. And, and yet there those fish were. And what they discovered was this. The fish had this miraculous pressure inside them that pushed back on the seven miles of water weighing down on them. If the pressure inside of you and I as Christ followers is spirit-filled, it's the Word of God, it's, it's empowered by the Spirit, it doesn't matter how much the mold seeks to, 
to mold us, shape us, impose its values, impose its morals on us, we will be able to be and we must be steadfast in opposing it. I'm going to close with, with what I believe is the secret to steadfastness for you, for me, for everybody. Here it is. Steadfastness happens when I find something that is, first of all, valuable, beautiful, desirable, and inspirational. Hold off before you go to that next slide. Hold off. Jesus told a parable. He told a, a series of parables in all of Matthew 13. But in Matthew 13, verse 44 and 45, he talked about a parable where there was a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field and he goes and he sells all that he has to get that treasure. He tells another one right behind the very next verse about a, a pearl that is found, a pearl of great price. And again, the owner sells everything to, to have the pearl. When I see Jesus and what the king and the kingdom of God looks like, when I see what the, the world of Jesus will look like, the heavenly world, I, I find something so stunningly beautiful that I just... I don't know. Call it what you want. I've been knocked off my feet in love with him since age 23. I'm just stunned at his beauty. And the longer that I study him and the longer that I look into him and his kingdom, the more beautiful it becomes. A place where everyone's loved. Everyone's respected. No sickness, sorrow, no pain, no death. Everyone's kind. Everyone's honest all the time. Nobody's lonely. No one feels unloved. Nobody walks around with, with feelings of guilt and fear and shame. Fear is non-existent. I see everything that I find beautiful, intoxicatingly beautiful in Jesus and in his kingdom. So it's valuable, it's beautiful, it's desirable, and it inspires, it energizes me. Here's the other side of this. It's not just valuable, it's beneficial because I find the life Jesus calls me to now is the best possible life a human being can have, even in this present imperfect world that has sin, sorrow, sickness, pain, and death. His beauty and the beauty of his kingdom is incomparable. There's nothing on this earth that can satisfy the yearning that I have for that kingdom, that existence. It's in you too because our God planted it in all of us. It's not just something we desire to be like Christ, to be partakers of his, his life, to, to feel the way he feels and to think the way he feels. It, it's obtainable. Many of us in this room can say, man, I, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm knowing more and more of God's love. I'm knowing more and more of God's peace inside. I'm knowing more and more of God's joy. I know more and more of his compassion. I, I know progressively, experientially, what it feels like to have the life of God in me. And it's transcendental. It's not just inspirational. It's not just something that reaches to the deepest part of my spirit and soul, but it passes the grave. It goes into eternity. You were, I were, we were made for eternity. We are eternal beings in a developmental journey. That's a very short journey that we call time. So the secret for me, and I'm convinced the secret for everyone, for being steadfast is this. I've got to find something that is valuable and stunningly beautiful and something that's desirable, obtainable, and inspirational. When I find that, when I find that treasure in the field, which is Jesus in his kingdom, when I find that pearl of great price, it draws me like a magnet. It strengthens me so that I can continue to grow and endure 
and remain steadfast in any and every circumstance. And it will absolutely, absolutely do the same thing for you. Now, in closing, a couple questions. I wonder if it would be wise for us to consider of the two areas that I mentioned that we tend to be challenged on, which one are we the most vulnerable? Am I most vulnerable to be challenged and pulled from my steadfastness by the spiritual deception that exists in the world today? Is that where my vulnerability is? Is that my weak point? And if it is, what might I do to strengthen myself to be steadfast? And of course, just, just a thought, you know it means in some way, shape, or form, getting into the Word of God and letting the Word of God get into you. No shortcuts there. I wonder if culture might be your weak point, your vulnerable point. It might be that when you get around certain friends or certain environments, you go along to get along. You lose your, your strength. You lose your steadfastness. Your identity shifts. And you start becoming molded by the environment, by the culture, rather than by the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And if that's true, what might be the way that you could counter that and learn to start becoming more steadfast? Might be something to just get along with God and say, God, what do I need to do? You, you know how weak I am with that person or in that environment. How can I counter that? I want to be steadfast. And lastly, if you're here and you came in here this morning and you were kind of confused about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be sure that you have eternal life, I, I hope you're clear about that now. It means putting your trust in Christ and becoming his follower. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. You were meant for eternal life and God gives that eternal life as a free gift to anyone that makes a decision to put their trust in Christ and become his follower. And you, you can do that today. I did it at age 23, you can do it today. But recognize, it's not a contract. Come on. It's a relationship. Right. It's not like going and buying a car. You don't go home and live with the car dealer that you bought the car from. It's more like a marriage. You say, I do, and then you go live with the person for you know, as long as you can. <laughs> so it's a, relational, it's a relational thing we're entering into with Christ, a lifelong relationship. It's, it's not a contract. We clear? all right let's pray <laughs> father we thank you for just a wonderful wonderful day it was so great to see these families these young families devoting themselves to you and their children to you so wonderful to have the clarity the beauty of your word and we just pray that your spirit will just start to stir in us a new desire a new determination to develop and to cultivate this trade that you urge us to, to develop called steadfastness may it be true for all of us until your kingdom and your coming it's in your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.